Welcome to the Sprig Podcast, your source for the most relevant topics in pediatric dentistry. I'm your host, Dr. Jared Johnson. Today on our show, we have Dr. Sarah Khan, and we are going to be going through her journey over the past few years, going through dental school and residency. And if you haven't heard her story, it is wonderful and exciting, and she's got some great experience in the public health sector, as well as leadership through the American Dental Association and the American Academy of Pediatric Dentistry. And... She just completed her residency as in working in private practice. And during these past year, a year and a half with COVID, it's going to be an interesting story to hear what she has to say about the challenges that residents have faced and how it's looked, you know, coming out into the private practice world from residency. So uh, welcome on the show here today, Dr. Sarah. Hi, good afternoon or good morning, wherever you are. It's so, so exciting to be here and Thank you so much for that great introduction, and I'm very excited for our chat today. So can we start off, uh, what got you interested in in dentistry? You did a BS in biology, mm-hmm. and you graduated with honors, and what made you want to become a dentist? Absolutely. So um, I have a very personal experience with my own dentist. I was born missing my number 10, and I was in ortho for, you know, a very long time trying to maintain that space. And I always felt that at a young age, I couldn't um, smile as much, and my smile didn't match my personality. And through a lot of ortho treatment and through um, implants, I was able to receive an implant and um get that space closed. And I think that boost my confidence and self-esteem. And I wanted to be able to do that for others. I love that dentistry um, marries perfectly science, but also um, technology and also public health and the ability that you have as a dentist to make a great impact on somebody's life. And you'd mentioned public health. That is something that I think fits really, really well with our mission as pediatric dentists. If you look at pediatric dentists, most of us do treat underserved people, Mm -hmm. uh, populations on Medicaid, maybe some at-risk populations. You also have a master's in public health. Did that come before or after dental school? So it 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 happened during dental school, which was, to be honest, very crazy. I applied for the dual degree program after my first year of dental school, and I was lucky enough to be accepted, and I also received a scholarship. So in the morning hours, I was doing my dental school classes, and then two or three days a week from 5.30 to 8.30, I would have my public health classes. It was definitely um, very stressful, and I had to learn how to manage my time wisely. But it allowed me to um, switch the hats I was wearing and step outside the dental school bubble that we have where we're so focused on perfecting that distal margin of a crown prep or, you know, dentures or all those things and kind of look at health from a larger macro perspective and understand the reasons why certain populations and um, certain people are kind of more prone to having dental disease and have more trouble um, in terms of advocating for their own oral health and receiving the proper oral health. I think that's really important that we realize that with everything that's, you know, going on with diversity, equity, and inclusion uh, in the, in this times, I know there's some challenges we have 
here with health equity in Iowa. And we have one group of kids on a CHIP program where the reimbursement is what Delta Dental pays us. And mm. the Medicaid kids are that get support from the federal government or a lower fee schedule. So there's a lot of avenues in public health. What's the biggest thing you've taken from your master's in public health into the pediatric dentistry world? Sure. I think that oftentimes um, we see that going to the dentist is the first step, but so many things have to happen before that. It's kind of like an entire community involvement. Not only do kids have to be advocated for at school in terms of, um, you know, the snacks they receive, what types of um, emphasis they have from their parents and their teachers, but also the pediatrician and other interdisciplinary healthcare professionals have kind of all coming together to view the child as a whole, not just when the child comes to the denti a dentist, eventually when they do, sometimes it's too late and now they have 20 out of 20 of their primary teeth that have decay, but what happened before that? So I think we need to work not only as dentists, but as healthcare professionals to try to really emphasize that um, the AAPD standard of getting dentists kids into the dentist at the age of one and emphasizing good home care habits because a lot of good dentistry and a lifetime of health happens at home, less so what we do. We're kind of there just to be their cheerleaders and, you know, fix problems as they arise and provide anticipatory guidance for um, things going forward. Yeah, I absolutely agree. And it's great because if you can see that kid early, then mm -hmm. we can catch something when it is small and maybe we yep. can do, you know, a smart restoration mm -hmm. or a hall crown or see the kid more frequently every three months for fluoride. And we can really champion that kid, like you said, be their cheerleader to get them to the point where they can have that, you know, restored with something that might be more appropriate that mm -hmm. we would normally do if they were able to, to cooperate and avoid sedation. And yep. I know there's been a, you know, a lot of you know, press about sedation and dentistry. And I think we get a tough rap on it because we're oh, so yeah. good at using local anesthesia. But those are some great points to be interdisciplinary. I know that's one of your other passions. Maybe we can talk about that another time. Absolutely. Moving on from your dental school and public health, you decided to go into a GPR. Can you touch on that experience a little bit? Because I think that's a great, great way to get experience. I know New York, where you are, requires that, mm -hmm. but also it is a great lead in to get some more experience for sedation and things you might be doing special needs for pediatric dental field. So my GPR was, um, you know, kind of crucial for my career going forward. I, like you mentioned, I do think interdisciplinary care is very important. All too often, Dentists are viewed as separate from the other um, healthcare professionals. My husband's a physician, so I've always wanted to find um, the role of a dentist in a hospital. And through a GPR, that was realized, especially in the emergency room, um, in terms of trauma and you know dental alveolar infections. The physicians, they're great at what they know, but they really don't know anything about the mouth. So I thought that was a really unique opportunity and a niche that dentists can serve as far as taking care of those patients, providing treatment for those emergencies. And not only that, um, in my GPR, we had a lot of patients that were undergoing complex cardiovascular surgeries as well as um, chemo, chemotherapy treatments. So they always required um, clearance from the dentist. I really don't like that word clearance because 
we're not really clearing them. We're just making sure that, you know, nothing's going on their mouth that would provide any type of complications or difficulty to their, um, you know, health going forward. And when I was providing those clearances from our perspective, I would always try to emphasize to the patient that once they've recovered from their procedure or their um, you know, surgery or medicine regimen that they definitely come back and find a dental home because making sure that the mouth is healthy, not only the teeth, but the, um, you know, the periodontal health, that'll definitely, um, you know, ensure them for good health going forward with all the research that's coming out with the relation, um, relation of oral health and overall health. It's funny that you feel the same way about clearance. It's um, I was on, I remember in residency, I was on the phone with one of the anesthesiologists that was mm-hmm. going to do one of the cases for the next day. And he, he finally said, the only person that can clear a person for general anesthesia is the person giving the anesthesia. So I, right. I got to chuckle out of that. But he, that's why I don't ask physicians for, for clearance anymore for RGA cases. I ask for their uh, recommendations. Right. And, and, and how we can help optimize the patient. I think correct. it's just, I think changing the verbiage when we communicate with our um, other healthcare professional colleagues will allow them to understand that dentistry is not just the mouth and just the teeth. It kind of all connects and all like a patient that has healthy smile and healthy oral health. They can their PO intake is better. They can eat. They can smile. They can function. They're not. They have increased quality of life. So everything really connects, and that's something I am um, very passionate about. And I think for pediatrics, it's so relevant because kids change every day, and there's so many milestones that pediatricians are tracking. As dentists, we see those as well. So I think it's going to be. I see the future for the um, the collaboration with. Um, pediatric dentists and pediatricians to be very bright. Yeah, I think we all have that, those patients that the parents, you go to do the case on general anesthesia and they come back and they tell you that the kid's a different kid, they're mm-hmm. eating everything, they just change their behavior, their attitude. And it is true. I mean, these kids do experience discomfort, but they're just so used to it that they don't mm-hmm. know what normal feels like. And it's just, that's probably for me, one of the most rewarding feelings is when you can have a parent come back and say that their kid has improved and you hear Mm -hmm. that story, it just makes you feel, feel so good. Oh, absolutely. After, did you go straight into residency for pediatric residency after your GPR? No, I did not. Um, So I finished my GPR in 2017 and then I worked in private practice for two years before I started my pediatric dentistry residency. And In private practice, you know, I've always had um, an interest in pediatrics, but I was of the mindset that, you know, I could be a general dentist and see kids too. Um, I had a great robust pediatric um, dentistry education in dental school as well as my GPR, so I did feel comfortable, but I found my knowledge base um, lacking and I felt that I couldn't provide for my patients as much as I wanted to, so that's why I decided to um, apply for pediatric dentistry. And it just so happened that the practice that I was working in in Philadelphia, the dentist that was treating the pediatric patients, he was leaving for another position. So um, I kind of took over his position and was able to um, see pediatric patients only for the second year of my um, private practice experience. And it was great, but I realized I knew 
I needed to know so much more. And even now, after finishing residency, I still need to know so much more. I feel like every time I see patients and I encounter something, I make like a mental note for to look something up or discuss it with one of my um, co-residents or discuss it with one of my mentors. And I feel like you just always have to learn because there's always new things to um, learn so we can do better for our patients. Absolutely. I think, you know, residency is just the start and mm -hmm. I'm about, I don't know, six years out now and I am still learning stuff every day and it's exciting. It's, it's, mm -hmm. there's new stuff coming out all the time. There's also things that are obscure that you don't see all the time mm -hmm. that you forget about. And it's just a wonderful profession and every day is different. And the kids say different things every, yeah. every day. And it's, it's just a wonderful profession to keep learning in. And I'm excited to keep moving forward with whatever route we go and how things are going to change over the next few years. You had the chance to also serve in some organized dentistry, which I think mm -hmm. is really awesome. Uh, it's something that I think is very beneficial and I would encourage anyone that is interested in the APD is always looking for people to come into a leadership role, but you served on the resident committee mm -hmm. and that's a huge role to steer the future for, you know, recruitment, retention, and also what are the needs that residents have and how can we address things like student debt and, and all those things that go along with coming out of residency and finding a practice or uh, public health clinic to work at or, you know, what idea self. So can you explain a little bit about your experience on that resident committee over the time you were with the APD? Absolutely. So I'm actually um, one of the senior members of the resident committee. It's usually a two to three year involvement. And the great thing about the resident committee is that when they select the members, they do a very good job to um, choose residents from diverse locations around the United States. So every residency, depending on the state you're in and the, you know, the um, socioeconomic conditions of the population there, it's a little bit different, but we all have very similar needs. So by working with, um, you know, the resident committee throughout the country, we're able to kind of focus in on the way that AAPD can provide to the residents. And we work on, um, we focus on writing the, the pediatric dentistry t today or times, the, um, the magazine that comes out. So we write articles for that. And what's something that's new that we've been working on is that we're working with the American Academy of Pediatrics their corresponding um, trainee chapter to kind of create collaboration and see what type of resources we can create from both sides to um, kind of help in the development of our um, education and how patient care is approached. I think that would be, given our discussion today, hugely beneficial to mm -hmm. kind of help us bridge the gap and start where we're in the mode where we're learning and be able to get people to connect in, in that matter. You also did something I think is really, really cool. The You were in the uh, ADA Institute for Diversity and Leadership. That's a pretty big oh deal. That changed my life. Like, I don't, I can't, I, I can't say enough good things about that, that program. Um, I applied and by some, some miracle or something, I was um, accepted and I was actually one of the last classes to, to have the in-person meetings because the class after me, actually, a lot of the meetings were virtual. So the ADA does a really good job 
um, in creating a very robust curriculum for leaders. We not only participate in um, monthly seminars regarding various leadership problems and techniques, but we also focus on um, a particular topic or something that we are passionate about. And then through that project, we get to implement um, the things that we learned. And that's been really great. My project that I actually did was very similar to my work in the resident committee. Um, I found that when I was in dental school, I was heavily involved in ASDA, um, the American Student Dental Association, and I was involved in you know, organized dentistry when I was working in Philadelphia, but I felt that in my GPR, there was a gap. I felt like as a resident, I was kind of lost and I didn't know what type of resources the ADA could provide for me. So I focused on seeing what the ADA has existing and what kind of things they can do um, going forward as, a, as in regards to improving um, the resources that are available to residents. What were some of those things that just came top of mind that were some resources that you thought would be beneficial? Definitely job searching. I think there's a lot of misinformation almost about how to search for a job, what the right type of job is. We all go into dental school saying that, okay, we'll come out in four years and be a dentist, but nobody really talks about what it means to apply for a license, apply for a job, sign a contract, what's a W-2 versus a 1099, all those questions. And those resources exist. I think they're just not readily available or people don't know where to look or what questions to ask. So that was um, one of the top concerns I found when I um, did a survey for the um, for the residents. Yeah, it's definitely, that's just the tip of the iceberg, I think, when oh, yeah. you go to, to look. And it can be confusing because you, you really don't know what you don't know. And mm -hmm. if you're signed up as a 1099 and you're not paying your own taxes, you could end yep. up in a little bit of a hole at the end <laughs> of the year. There are some advantages to it, uh, but that's that's something that definitely, you they don't teach you in residency unless you've got a faculty that's coming in and talking mm -hmm. about reviewing contracts with you. So that's wonderful that you could get that information out there. I want to move into your last, I guess, two years prior sure. to the residency here. Um, I know that you had your husband's a doctor and yes. you guys had to go different places. How mm -hmm. how did that work out? I know I had some co-residents in my class and the class below me that had spouses that were in another, another location. I think it's very common. How did you guys manage that stressful time? You know, it's... <laughs> We managed it, and now that we're living together, I still kind of don't know how we did it. Going into long distance, n neither one of us or anybody expected um, a global pandemic, and that definitely threw a wrench in the works because we were both working at hospitals, and each state had separate and distinct COVID regulations. So there was a period um, earlier in 2020 where we didn't see each other for eight or nine weeks, which which is a lot, but we made the most of it. And now that we're living together, I think we um, appreciate each other one a lot more. Thank God for um, FaceTime. We would spend a lot of time on FaceTime coordinating things and just keeping each other company while not actually being um, physically in the same place. I think one of the most frustrating things was the double chores um, when I would go to Maryland to visit my husband, 
you know, we would spend the weekend, hang out and we would cook or go grocery shopping or do laundry. And then, you know, I would go back to Brooklyn on mon early, early Monday morning and then I would come back and we had done the chores in one place, but now I had my own cooking to do my own laundry to do. So that redundancy got very frustrating very quickly, but um, it's definitely a blessing and we're so happy to be living together and kind of getting used to um, combining the two households that were just separated temporarily. I think in your article for uh, Shift, you mentioned that you guys would cook together over mm -hmm. Zoom or yeah. FaceTime? Yeah, we would. We would try to cook the same thing, but we have a little bit different palettes. So we would, you know, cook together, fold laundry together, try to do similar chores at the same time. So it created that illusion and that perception that um, that we were together. And it was the small things, actually. My co-chief, she was also um, in a long distance relationship. And like you mentioned before, it's pretty common um, in the um, in the medical profession. But both of us knew that continuing our professional or career goals was important and that it was temporary and that our relationship would always be there. And we made it a priority to prioritize each other and realize that compromise was needed. Some days would be very difficult and they were, especially with, um, especially with the pandemic. But I think we came out of it stronger than we were beforehand. So you mentioned your co-resident had a similar situation. Mm -hmm. How did you manage with your co-residents and keeping things to be positive and a productive learning environment and a, you know, just being a team player? Absolutely. So I have, um, I had five co-residents. They were all girls, which everybody was pretty worried about just having a group of girls together. Um, but those girls, you know, I think we all elevated one another and brought each other up to go through residency. Residency in and of itself is very stressful, let alone residency during a pandemic where things changed daily, if not hourly. And I think the thing that we emphasized was to always look out for one another. Um, during the pandemic, we were a little short-staffed in terms of our assistance, and I never had to ask twice for one of my co-residents to help me. If I had a patient there and one of my co-residents' patients wasn't there, you know, I would always have help in terms of setting up or helping to manage um, the patient. So I just what I advise to the new first years when I was chief resident is that just to keep your eyes and ears always open, even like when you're writing your notes, just try to have an idea of what's happening in the clinic. If you hear, um, you know, co-resident struggling or you hear the difficult patient, just, you know, get up and help. And I feel like through the willingness to help others, you end up learning a lot. Um, I learned a lot from just watching my co-residents and seeing how they managed patients, seeing how they gave local or spoke to um, parents and kids, like some of the colloquialisms some of my co-residents have, I've now adopted because I just like the way it sounds. And I think learning from your co-residents is probably one of the most valuable things in a residency, aside from obviously learning from the didactic material and your attendings. One of the things I did was I um, found a, the, one of the second years as a first year to kind of be my mentor. Mm -hmm. I know they set us up, but everyone's got different personalities and sometimes it, the setup isn't the best, but yep. um, the setup was great. And I 
learned a lot. We still talk almost every mm -hmm. week and he owns his own private practice too. And we go through the same things and we can bounce things off. So I think those relationships that you build during residency with your co-residents are really important. And I think like you hit on being a team player and being able to come up and pick up and help out when you need to and realize something that you might need to do to get out the door can wait so you can help yep. someone else. Oh, so th I think that just absolutely is the truth. And I think you hit the nail on the head when you said you'll, you'll learn a lot more. Yeah, and that Did nature, you do? Sorry, the nature of helping is contagious. I feel like if other people see you doing it, they're more willing to do it. And I think it's, it's a great way to make your residency a lot of fun. Um, I really, I really miss the group a lot because working in private practice is very different. Sometimes I'm the only doctor in the office and I definitely miss having the great group, um, with me every day at work. Yeah. Some days you're, when you're out, you're on your own and yeah. that's why you got to do all those difficult things in residency so that you yes. are prepared <laughs> to do them on your own. Yeah. Were there any other routines, like as far as exercise or, you know, just taking some time for yourself, taking breaks that during residency that helped you kind of relax and cope with the stress? Yeah, absolutely. So when the weather was good, I would actually walk to the hospital, um, walk to our clinic. It was about a mile and a half and it was through Brooklyn. So it was definitely, it was definitely fun and got me moving. Um, but one of the things that I really did to relax and one of my hobbies is I love jigsaw puzzles. And especially during the pandemic, I did jigsaw puzzles before the pandemic made them cool. Just have to put that out there. But um, I found the mindfulness of working on a jigsaw puzzle to be very peaceful and it helped me really get um, centered. I think all dentists love working with their hands and my hobbies are all involved working with my hands. So in addition to jigsaw puzzles, I love doing um, embroidery and I love um, painting actually on my iPad and just like small things where I can create and kind of have that, um, that instant gratification that dentistry also gets us when we do our procedures. Yeah, I think it's important. I've realized that over the, I guess, the past year and a half, that it's important to have something outside mm -hmm. of dentistry that you enjoy doing. Um, I love grilling. I got Ooh. a new uni pizza oven. I love doing oh. that. It's like, there's just so many things that, you know, I enjoy about that, that just takes your mind off of mm -hmm. being in the office, being with patients, dealing with the stress of an upset parent mm -hmm. or, you know, a, a issue with staff it just takes your mind off of it and you can kind of get away and it sounds like you were able to do that quite a bit with your walks and and things like that coming down here to your graduation mm -hmm. how did it look with covid and looking for a job post-residency i know you'd been out before so maybe you had some connections there but what was that like because that's that was a big worry when everyone was shut down, that these all the residents wouldn't able be able to find a placement. How are you and your co-residents doing? Everybody's doing very well. Almost everybody um, is in a job. The two ladies in my program that are not in jobs, that's because they're new moms. So they're taking care of their kids and spending some time um, with their new babies, which is also very, very important. Um, it was different finding a job because it was... Um, you weren't as easily able to um, visit the practices and see the things. So a lot of the interviews and searching I did was online, but the community of dentists and being involved in organized dentistry definitely aided in that. I had never lived in Maryland before. My husband's here, but I did know some people that knew some people in Maryland. So that was um, 
a great way to kind of start the conversation. And then from there, um, there were some video interviews. And once the video interviews went well, I visited the practice and, you know, um, I signed a contract. I actually did that pretty early on back in um, February because I wanted time at the end of my program to focus on um, my research and my board. So I'm super excited that that went well. And from what I've been hearing, talking to my co-residents and other graduating pediatric dentists, I know I think everybody is well-placed despite the worries that we all had. That's wonderful to hear. I think another point you just made is finding out that early when you're crunching down at the end of the residency and you're trying to get ready for that written board exam and also finishing up your research if you have to, that is nice to have that out of the way. Oh my so gosh, kudos yeah. to you for looking out for that. What <laughs> um, types of practices did you look at joining? Did you look at solo practice, you know, taking over a solo practice, a large group practice or a dental service organization? What types did you get gravitated to? So I was really looking into all types of practices, but what was important for me was kind of the, um, the ethos of the practice. I wanted a practice that focused on you know, providing good care to the patients and becoming um, a part of their family. And I like the idea of a practice that kind of grows up with the children and parents bring multiple generations of like, not parents bring multiple, there's like multiple generations of patients in that practice and patients look forward to coming to that practice. The environment is fun. It's collaborative. Um, Not only is there focus on the dentistry itself, but you know, establishing good habits for the children, identifying, you know, other components of the child, such as looking for sleep apnea issues or tongue tie issues and kind of combining um, a little bit of everything. So it becomes a true dental home. And when you were looking at all those practices, I know the type was more important, but were there any resources that you found helpful? I know you mentioned organized dentistry. I know the ADA has ADAPT out there, which is more centered for general practitioners, mm-hmm. but it will probably be coming up with you know profiles for pediatric dentists and specialists here in the new future. And then the AAPD, I think, has some listings on their website, the Career Center, too. Did you, what resources were available to you? So I looked at the AAPD Career Center. That was very helpful, as well as um, just Googling different things like Monster and Indeed. A lot of people tend to shy away from those types of things. And at least my philosophy is the job you apply for is not necessarily going to be the job you take. I feel like it's almost better sometimes to know what you don't want as opposed to what you want. And that helps you make an informed decision. I remember very specifically when I was applying for a GPR job, one of the practices I applied for, it was great on paper. I was like, this is a beautiful office. So like technologically up to date. And then the literally the first question the practice owner asked me, he was like, how long does it take you to do a number five, a number, um, number 15 endo. And like, I was in the middle of my GPR and I was like three hours, which is, I was honest. I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna lie. And he was like three hours. He's like, I want somebody to, somebody to be able to do endo in 45 minutes. And that blew my mind. And like the conversation did proceed beyond that, but I knew that that's not the type of practice I wanted to focus to work in or to to be with that type of person because that was against my philosophy in terms of how I wanted to approach dentistry. 
Yeah, there certainly are people that can do 45 minute number 15, but I think most of them are probably endodontists. So right, you're, exactly. you're probably, or have a lot of experience with, with the second maxillary molar endos. So mm-hmm. that brings me to my last question here is how do you feel like your residency prepared you to be in the position you are? I know that's what a lot of fear I had when I came out. I was like, oh, I don't know everything, but did you feel like you knew enough? Is there something which you wish you would have got more of? Or how did you, how do you feel today practicing? Uh, I know your experience is wonderful with organized dentistry mm-hmm. and the GPR and your residency. So what, what things are residents, should they know coming out that they're going to be prepared to go and see their patients? Sure. I think residency is a great time to ask a lot of questions. I realized this after a graduated residency that never again, maybe not never again, you'll likely never be in a situation where you're surrounded by so many other pediatric dentists between your co-residents and your attendings. There's so much opportunities for um, picking one another's brains. And I think that was the greatest thing I took from residency. I think that was the greatest thing that prepared me for the real world is the ability to ask other people questions and work on problem solving together. Residency was very busy and some days crazy. And I think being in residency taught me a lot about how to problem solve. Sometimes when a patient's behavior was really bad and you just needed to to do something, I think it taught me to be a little bit more fearless and understand that you have the support there. And as long as your intentions are right and you um, do the best for your patient that you'll be able to um, that you'll be able to do well. One thing that I wish I had more experience in is just having more time for OR cases. And that wasn't anything specific for my residency, just because of COVID, a lot of um, elective surgeries were canceled. And unfortunately, dental oral rehabilitation falls into that elective category, whereas for a lot of our patients, it wasn't elective. It like really needed to be done. And those um, four or five months where the OR was closed, I definitely missed having more opportunities to treat patients under um, GA because I feel like that's a great opportunity just to work on your speed and clinical skills without really worrying about behavior management. Absolutely. So it's been a pleasure having you on the podcast today. I'm excited to hopefully have you back. I want to do, I do want to bring you back to talk about interdisciplinary care. Yes, let's do and it. I think there's, you, you mentioned a lot of things that you are you, like tongue ties, sleep apnea. There's just so there's many so things. Much. I remember I referred a kid who had uh, like a Brodsky four tonsils that oh I wasn't going to sedate in my office to the ENT. He said they didn't need to come out. And then two years later, he ended up taking them out. So I think oh, there's, wow a lot of things that we can definitely help not tell them, tell them what needs to be done, Mm -hmm. but kind of just start that conversation with our medical providers. So I really appreciate you bringing that part into it. And uh, I've really enjoyed hearing your experience and that you're, you are successful. And a lot of the fears that maybe some of our first year residents or second year residents have that were first years last year have, um, they can come out and be confident and be prepared to knock it out of the park when they graduate so thanks again of course thank you so much for having me thank you for listening to the sprig podcast 
If you enjoyed the show, be sure to subscribe, leave a review, and share on social media. If you have any questions or if you have a topic you would like to hear covered in a future episode, please email podcast at sprigusa.com.